0: Well, today we begin a three part mini series on the Christian family, which we're going to take from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to chapter 6, and verse 4. This week we're going to start where Paul starts with the Christian wife. Next week, Mike is going to preach on the Christian husband, and in two weeks, Gordon will tackle Christian families. Lord willing, then, we will return to our series in Romans the first Sunday in February. And when we were dividing up who was going to preach on what, uh, the lot fell to me to address the issue of the Christian wife. So I want to warn husbands, um, do not sharpen your elbows... And prepare to drive them into the ribs of your wife, who is, I hope, seated next to you. Because, in the measure with which you measure out judgment this week, it shall be measured back to you twofold next week. Uh, so, a word to the wise you have been warned. Before we begin, however, I do want to take just a moment and address the Christian single, whether the never married, the divorced, or the widowed. If we aren't careful, and I think this is a mistake that churches make all too often. We can give the impression in a series like this that the only way to be happy, the only way to be holy, the only way to be whole and complete is to be married. That is a tragic error in thinking. The New Testament simply does not speak like that. In fact, a natural reading of the New Testament may even give the impression that singleness is the desired state for Christians. And that marriage is only for those of weak faith who cannot handle singleness. If you don't believe me, I challenge you this afternoon to go read the latter half of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for yourself and see whether, in fact, Paul speaks that way. Though marriage is the ordinary state of humanity, including Christians, the New Testament presents singleness as an extraordinary gift given to some for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of their own greater joy. So in order to remain true to the New Testament emphasis, I think it only wise to begin with a word to the Christian single. So this morning I have three statements to make to you the christian single and to the church with regard to how we think of singleness how we speak of singleness number 1 your singleness is not a curse it is a blessing at least this is the way the apostle paul spoke 1 corinthians chapter 7 verses 7 to 9 i wish that all were as i myself am in other words single but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry, because it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I want you to note that Paul refers to singleness as a gift, a charisma. Now some may think of singleness as the gift that nobody wants, or perhaps the gift that one wishes they could return in exchange for a different gift, but Paul calls it a gift nonetheless. Furthermore, he says, it is a gift from God for the good of the one who receives it. It is good for them to remain single as I am. Now I take this to mean that it is given to some to be single for their greater joy and their greater blessing. In other words, if they knew what God knew, they would joyfully receive and relish the gift of singleness which he has bestowed upon them. And what is Paul's reasoning for wishing that everyone would remain single while at the same time in the same chapter affirming the good and godly state of marriage? Well, later on in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32, he says, I want you, single people, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Singleness is a gift from God, which enables the single Christian To give to the Lord undivided attention. And Paul says it is an avenue for their greater joy. So take caution in thinking that the only way to be happy is to be married. Because the implication of this is that Jesus is not enough to satisfy the longings of your soul. Which brings me to a second statement. Marriage is not essential to your happiness, or to your holiness, or to your wholeness as a human being. Now, nothing that I'm saying is to deny the foundational truth that it is not good for man to be alone, Genesis 2.18. But I would hasten to add that no Christian is truly alone. He or she has fellowship with the living God and has a spiritual family that surpasses any biologically formed household. A hundredfold surpasses it, says Jesus in Mark 10, 29. Furthermore, marriage and sex are not essential to personhood. If that were the case, Jesus would have been an incomplete person. But as John Piper once wrote in an article on singleness, quote, the most fully human person who has ever lived or ever will live is Jesus Christ, and he never once had sexual intercourse. In other words, to claim that marriage or sex is essential to being fully human, which is exactly what our world claims, particularly with regard to the latter and not so much to the former is to deny the full humanity, the full happiness, and the full holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, singleness is the ultimate destiny of every human being. Simply put, marriage will not exist in eternity. When the Sadducees came to Jesus and they told the story of the woman who had been widowed seven times and they asked Jesus whose wife she would be in the resurrection, Jesus responded, you are wrong." because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but they, they are like the angels in heaven. In eternity, our relationships will be transformed into something greater, something deeper, something higher. Marriage is a temporary state, which is why those who have been married twice will not be eternal bigamists, and those who have never been married will not be eternally alone. Now again, Piper wrote, quote, this truth has profound significance for singleness in this life. It means that if two wives will not be one too many, then no wives will not be one too few. If love in the age to come is transposed into a key above and beyond the melody of marriage in this life, then singleness here will prove to be no disadvantage in eternity. So far from being second class citizens, second class Christians in this life, singles possess a rare and radiant gift providing opportunity to see God's all-sufficient grace at work in ways that married Christians simply cannot. And it affords to them greater capacities for eternal joy because Jesus promised, Luke 18, 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. So let it be known, 1st Baptist Nixa, that singleness is a gift to be cherished. And marriage is not the ideal to which all should aspire. I would like it very much if we didn't go up to single women in this church and ask them, have they found a husband yet? Are they dating around? Or I've got someone that, that I think you would really like to meet with the implication being that surely they're not complete in and of themselves. Singleness is a state to be Cherished. That said, the gift of singleness is rare, and marriage is the ordinary state for the vast majority of Christians. The creation mandate to leave your father and your mother and to be joined to your wife to become one flesh and so to create a new family and a new home still applies to the vast majority of us. That being the case, we need to learn how to live within this God-ordained societal unit called the family according to God's good and holy design. That's what this series is all about. Wives need to relate to husbands according to God's good and holy design. Husbands need to relate to wives according to God's good and holy design. Parents need to relate to their children according to God's good and holy design. Children need to relate to their parents according to God's good and holy design. When we do, joy abounds, the gospel is made manifest, and Christ is exalted in our midst. So we're going to begin this morning where Paul begins. We're not beginning here because wives are most in need of instruction. We're beginning here because Paul begins with the Christian wife. And immediately we find ourselves confronted with one of the most unpopular and controversial components of the Christian faith. The issue of male headship and female submission. So, this morning we're going to tackle this hot button issue first by looking at the all encompassing command which Paul gives to Christian wives. Secondly, by looking at the all important comparison in which Paul grounds this command the comparison between the husband and wife and Christ in the church. We'll then deal with some of the all too common complaints which arise whenever the topic of female submission is raised before finally concluding with that all-satisfying conclusion of living according to God's design. So that's our roadmap for this morning. Let's look first at the all-encompassing command. Paul issues one command and one only to the Christian wife. And it's found in Ephesians 5, to 24 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, let's break this command down into two parts. First, I want to look at the meaning of submission. The word submit does not actually occur in the Greek text of verse 22. It needs to be supplied from the text of verse 21, where Paul instructs the entire church to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word translated submit was originally a military term, and it always, always, always implies a relationship of authority. For instance, this word is used in Scripture of the submission of Jesus to the authority of his parents, Luke 2:51, of demons being subject to the disciples, Luke 10:17, of citizens being subject to the governing authorities, Romans 13:1 and 5, of the universe being subject to Christ, 1 Corinthians 15:27, of unseen spiritual powers being subject to Christ, 1 Peter 3.22, of Christ being subject to God the Father, 1 Corinthians 15.28, of church members being subject to church leaders, 1 Corinthians 16.15, of wives being subject to their husbands here and in Colossians 3.18 and elsewhere, of the church being subject to Christ, Ephesians 5.24, of servants being subject to their masters, Titus, Timothy, no, Titus 2.9, and of Christians being subject to God, Hebrews 12.9. The point in running through that survey of the uses of this word submit throughout the New Testament is that not one of those relationships I just mentioned can be reversed. Not one of them. Parents are never subject to their children. Disciples are never subject to demons. Christ is never subject to the church, nor is he ever subject to the powers that are unseen in this universe. In other words, submission is never mutual. Ever. And neither is it mutual in Ephesians 5.21. The one another, submit to one another, does not mean that every Christian submits to every other Christian. Which would then include, as you just let your eyes run down through the text of Ephesians 5 and 6... Christian husbands submitting to Christian wives, Christian parents submitting to Christian children, Christian servants submitting to Christian masters. That's not what Paul means in Ephesians 5.21. He means that Christians should exercise godly submission within the various authority structures represented within the church. Wives to husbands, children to parents, servants to masters. In summary then, to submit means to place yourself willingly under that authority which God has placed over you. In this case, wives, your husband. It means to submit to his leadership, to willingly and joyfully receive from him all of those things which he is responsible to provide for you. Namely, love, wisdom, guidance, instruction, correction, nurture, provision. All of those things which Mike is going to challenge Christian husbands to next week. Second, I want to look at the extent of this submission. Paul makes the extent of the wife's submission plain, leaving no doubt as to what he has in mind. Wives are to submit to their own husbands. In other words, not to another man. For instance, their father. And they are to submit to their own husbands in everything. That is, in every sphere of life. Now clearly, any form of disobedience to God is accepted in this command. Okay, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. That principle carries through. And so, wives, if your husband ever instructs you to do something that would be disobedient to God's command, you are exempted from this command to submit to that instruction. But in my ten years of counseling, in my ten years of pastoral ministry, I have only ever seen that happen once. Once. So long as the husband is operating within the sphere of his God-given responsibilities of headship, there is no realm in which the wife is exempt from her responsibility to submit to his authority. For instance, the wife should not say, well, I'm better at finances than he is, so I'm just going to overrule him on this one. Or... I know my, job, my husband has taken this new job in another city, but I don't want to move, so I'm just not going to go with him. No, the Christian wife is called to submit to her own husband in everything as unto the Lord. This means that the wife's submission to her husband and her submission to Christ are interrelated. She cannot submit to the latter without being submitted to the former. She cannot say, I love Jesus, but I despise my husband. I trust Jesus, but I'm not going to trust my husband. God has designed the Christian life in such a way that our walk with Christ cannot be divorced from the relationships that we have with one another. A servant, for instance, cannot follow Christ without rendering faithful servants service to his master. Nor can a master follow Christ while at the same t- time mistreating his servant. A child cannot follow Christ without obeying his or her parents. Nor can a father follow Christ without raising his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Even so, a wife cannot follow Christ without respecting and submitting to her husband, just as a husband cannot follow Christ without loving and providing for his wife. Show me a wife who does not submit to her husband, and I will show you a woman who is not submitting to the authority of Jesus. Show me a wife who does not trust her husband, and I will show you a woman who is not trusting Jesus. The Christian wife trusts Jesus who is perfectly trustworthy for the grace and the faith that she needs to trust her husband who is imperfectly trustworthy. This means that obedience to the biblical command for a wife to submit to her husband is a matter of faith, just like the whole of the Christian life. It takes faith to submit to your husband's leadership, particularly if and when you think he might be wrong. But say that is the case. Say that even after you have lovingly and respectfully consulted with your husband, sharing with him your opinion and your concerns and your reasoning, yet he still persists in believing that his decision is the right move for the family, Let me ask you a question. What does faith do? Faith trusts Jesus for the grace to trust your husband. You could be right. Your husband could be wrong. But what then? Will Jesus not still take care of you as you trust in him? Does your husband's wrong decision somehow nullify Christ's promise to never leave you nor forsake you? Or you could be wrong and your husband may be right. The Christian wife trusts Jesus to take care of her husband, her family, and herself. Ultimately then, a Christian wife's Faith is not in her husband, it's in Christ. So wives, submit to your own husbands in everything as unto the Lord. That is your all-encompassing command. Now as he so often does, Paul grounds his commandment to wives in the order and the design of nature. Wives should submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For or because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, Paul doesn't here explain how or why the husband is the head of the wife. He simply assumes it as an established fact. Elsewhere, however... In places like 1 Corinthians eleven three 3 and 12, and 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, Paul explains that the basis for the husband's headship is God's design in creation. God created man first and then woman out of man. God then gave the woman to the man to be his wife, Genesis 2, 21 and 22. Even after the fall, when everything went haywire, God still stipulated that even though the wife's desire would be for, or probably better, against her husband, yet even so would he rule over her. According to Paul, this order and design of creation, both before and after the fall, has established irrefutably the headship of the husband over the wife and over the family. Now this headship of husband over wife and husband over family was taken for granted in nearly every society from the dawn of time until about the late 19th century. So Paul's assertion of male headship in Ephesians 5.23 is not news. That wouldn't have struck the Ephesian church as as bewildering in any way. What is startlingly new in this verse is that Paul then compares the relationship of the husband and the wife to the relationship of Christ and the church. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. John Stott writes, quote, Although Paul grounds the fact of the husband's headship in creation, he defines it in relation to the headship of Christ, the Redeemer. And this comparison helps us understand both the nature of the husband's headship, which Mike will unpack for us next week, And it helps us to understand the nature of the wife's submission. In other words, what kind of words should describe the submission of the wife to her husband? Well, what kind of words ought to describe the church's submission to Christ? That's the comparison that Paul's making. Words like willing, joyful, glad, loving, trusting. Faithful, completely come to mind. Those same words ought to apply to the wife's relationship to her husband. Now this all-important comparison provides an instant check for both husband and wife. Wives should check their attitudes, words, and behavior toward their husbands by asking, Would I treat Jesus this way? Likewise, husbands should check their attitudes, words, and behavior towards their wife by asking, would Jesus treat his church this way? Marriage is a picture of the gospel. It is a visible, daily representation of the relationship between Christ and his bride who is the church. This means that married couples have the extraordinary privilege and the weighty responsibility to provide for themselves, for their children, for their church, and for the world an accurate demonstration of the gospel, which is exactly where Paul goes later on in chapter 5. Look at verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Let each one of you, however, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So wives... When your children look at the way that you relate to your husband, their father, are they seeing an accurate depiction of the way that they should relate to Jesus? What are you teaching them about how they should relate to Christ in the way that you relate to your husband? When your unbelieving friends look at the way that you treat and speak of your husband, Are they seeing an accurate depiction of the way that a Christian treats or speaks of the Lord? Your marriage is about more than your personal happiness, although it is not about less. It is about the happiness of your children, your family, your church, and ultimately your unbelieving friends and neighbors. Marriage, in other words, is fundamentally evangelistic. It is a proclamation of the gospel of Christ without words. Your marriage says something about the gospel. The question is, is it saying something accurate about the gospel? But wait, it's not that simple, is it? Well, chances are, Several objections have popped into your head over the past 20 minutes or so. So in the time that remains, I would like to field five all too common complaints or objections which are raised against the notion of male headship and female submission within marriage. Now there are certainly more than five, but these are the five that I have received most often in my 10 years of pastoral ministry. I think by far the most common objection I face when counseling a wife on the basis of Paul's instructions here in Ephesians 5 is that, well, my husband isn't worthy of respect. I know what the Bible says, but you don't know my husband. How can you respect a man who is not respectable? I know I'm supposed to submit to my husband as the church submits to Christ, but what if my husband doesn't love me like Christ loves the church? Well, funny you should ask, because Peter addresses this very situation, doesn't he? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, you to notice that the command to wives does not change depending upon the circumstance of the husband. To those wives who have husbands who are disobedient, disobedient to the word, Peter instructs them to be subject. It's the exact same word as in Ephesians 5.22, submit to their own husbands. He instructs you to be respectful and pure possessing the imperishable beauty of a gentle soul and a quiet spirit. That is the way to win over your husband. Not with sanctimonious nagging or incessant berating, but without a word through the gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Could it be that your husband would act more respectably if he had a wife who treated him with more respect? In many cases, men will rise to the level of the respect that you afford them. They're wired that way. Furthermore, I have yet to meet a husband who hasn't done something worthy of respect. That there's nothing in him which the wife could possibly find to hang her respect on. If you can't find anything respectable in your husband, could it possibly be that your standards are impossibly high? Now, there are situations in which a husband may act so dishonorably and dehumanizing toward his wife that it becomes necessary to stand up to him to draw a boundary line which says you're not going to treat me this way and to separate from him rather than submit to his abuse. Those situations do occur. I'm not denying that they do. But they are the exceptions rather than the rule, and I'm not addressing them in this sermon. If you want to know whether I think your particular situation rises to that level, I would invite you to come speak to me in private, and I will give you my counsel. But right now, I'm merely making the point that a wife's responsibility to respect her husband is not dependent upon her husband's being worthy of that respect. Remember, submission is an act of Faith, not sight. Second, I would follow my husband, but he just won't lead. I've heard this a time or two. Sometimes it comes from a heartbroken woman who is married to a negligent husband who out of laziness and passivity just leaves all of the decision-making and all of the family leadership to her, not to mention all of the housework and the raising of the kids. Okay, what that particular husband needs is a uh, swift kick in the pants and for someone to tell him to grow up. More often than not, though, if I'm honest, I've found that this complaint comes from a wife who has a more naturally aggressive disposition that tends to overshadow her husband's more easygoing personality. In such cases, i found that the husband would lead the wife if the wife would let him lead in his own way. In other words, she sees that he isn't leading in the way in which she would lead, and so she just takes over. He sees that it's easier just to go along to get along, and so he lets her. And this is the kind of marriage where if you were to ask the kids who wears the pants in the family, they would immediately and in unison say, Mom... So wives, if this is you, you need to reckon with the biblical command to submit to your own husband. That is to submit to the husband that God has given you, not the husband that you wish he were. If your husband is not naturally bold and decisive... You must put your naturally confident and aggressive disposition in check. Get underneath his authority and let him lead in his own way. Give him the wheel of the family and let him drive. Now, it may be true that your husband needs to be bolder and more confident and exert more authority within the home, but you're not going to get him to do that by being overbearing and brash, by being large and in charge. Cultivate the gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Submit to your own husband's authority in the way in which your own husband exercises that authority and then watch him rise up and blossom into the man that you want him to be. Third, I'm more qualified to lead than my husband. Now, rarely... Rarely is the objection stated as plainly as this, but I've heard it in different ways. I've heard, but I make better decisions than my husband. But I'm better with money than he is. And, this is my favorite, but I'm usually right. And listen, all of those things may be true, and none of them is the point. Paul doesn't say, wives, submit to your own husbands in everything, unless, of course, you are more intelligent, wiser, and a better manager of the home. Then you lead and your husband should submit. Who makes better decisions is not the point. Who is more intelligent is not the point. Who is a better manager is not the point. The wife learning to cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God is the point. The husband learning to love and lead his wife as Christ loves and leads the church is the point. Wives, you are short-circuiting your own and your husband's own sanctification by refusing to submit to your husband's leadership. God has established the headship of the husband, not the headship of the most qualified. I have seen marriages that are beautiful depictions of the gospel where the wife has learned to cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God and she lovingly and joyfully submits to her own husband and yes, she is more intelligent than he is by nature. And she's more analytical and therefore tends to see the end from the beginning by nature. And the wise husband will rely upon her wisdom. But the fact that she's smarter and and more analytical and makes better decisions is simply not what God's concerned about. He's concerned, wives, with your gentle and quiet spirit. And he's concerned, wives... With your husband learning to love and lead you as Christ loves and leads the church. And that simply is not going to happen until you give him the wheel and let him drive. Fourth, but I'm just as important as my husband. Now I understand this objection, but it betrays a misunderstanding of the nature of biblical submission. Submission. The Bible simply sees no contradiction in commanding the wife to submit to her husband, while at the same time affirming the equality, the essential equality of husband and wife in terms of creation and redemption. In terms of creation both man and woman are equally created in the image of God Genesis 1:27 so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him in the image of God or male and female he created them both men and women bear God's image both equally bear God's image yet both differently Bear God's image. For instance, men bear God's image in that they reflect God's strength and His provision. Women bear God's image in that they reflect God's tenderness and His nurturing love. You ever wonder why God can be depicted in the scriptures as both a warrior who unsheaths his sword and wins victory for his people, and as a mothering hen who gathers his chicks underneath his wings. How are both aspects of God's nature going to be displayed to the world if he did not create men and women differently? Yet both bear God's image in that they possess personality, morality, and spirituality. Likewise, men and women are equal in terms of redemption. Men possess no greater benefits of Christ's redemption than do women, and women possess no less than do men. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. There is no distinction between men and women in terms of their sharing in the image of God or in terms of their share in the benefits of Christ's redemption. Furthermore, submission does not imply a deficiency of value. Let me give you two reasons. First is because all men everywhere live under some form of authority. For instance, I am under all manner of authority at various levels of government. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 13.1, Let everyone be subject, same word as Ephesians 5.22, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay? So I'm, I'm under all manner of authority, yet I don't consider myself of lesser value than our mayor, or our local policemen, or our state representatives, or our governor, or our United States congressman, or our president for that matter. And neither do you. We are all citizens of the United States, but some of us have been placed in positions of authority over others. Likewise, God has granted to the husband the authority within marriage, and this in no way diminishes the wife's value or equality. Second, God the Son is under the authority of God the Father, yet He is no less divine. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, And the head of Christ is God. Here, Paul places the wife's submission to her husband right alongside Christ's submission to God the Father, demonstrating that if the Father can be the head of the Son without the Son's being any less God, then the husband can be the head of the wife without the wife being any less human. So I reject the notion that male headship and female submission implies any diminishing of the wife's value or importance. In fact, far from making the woman less human, when a wife functions in the way God designed, she actually becomes more human. That is, more as God designed her to be. Finally, the last objection that I hear is that this command is an outdated relic from a pre-modern misogynistic culture. This has been the cry of feminism for decades. It basically says that in the same way that pre-modern people believed that the sun revolved around the earth and sickness was caused by evil spirits, so they also believed that women were to be subservient to men. But now in the modern age, we know that the solar system is heliocentric, that sickness is caused by microscopic bacteria and viruses, and that there is no functional difference between men and women. Well, I'm not going to address that objection from biological or sociological or philosophical viewpoints. Rather, I'm just going to offer a simple exegetical response. Evangelical feminists will take... Ephesians 5, 22-24, and they'll put it in the category of a culturally contextual command, meaning that it, it had some application for some distant culture way back then, specifically a pre-modern misogynistic culture, but it has no application in today's modern egalitarian world. In other words, it belongs in the same category as the command for women to wear head coverings and to remain silent in the church. Well, not so, says John Stott. He says, Paul's emphasis is on the order, mode, and purpose of the creation of Eve. And since it is mainly on these facts of creation that Paul bases his case for the husband's headship, his argument has permanent and universal validity and is not to be dismissed as culturally limited. The cultural elements of his teaching are to be found in the application of the principle, in the requiring of veiling certainly, and I think also in the requirement of silence. But the man's, and especially the husband's headship, is not a cultural application of a principle, it is the foundational principle itself. This is not chauvinism, this is creationism. In short, when Paul argues for male headship and female submission, he argues not from culture, which is ever-changing, he argues rather from creation, which is changeless. What this submission looks like may differ from culture to culture. For instance, a sign of submission in 1st century Corinth said that women should wear head coverings and not speak in a public gathering in which men were. But the principle has not changed from 1st century Corinth to 21st century Nixa. The fact of submission remains. Now, if you're looking for a theological category for which I've been advocating this morning, the technical term is complementarianism. The idea that God has created the sexes to be complementary, equal, but not identical. This complementarian relationship between husband and wife redounds to God's glory and abounds to our greater joy. In the same way that a melody which is sung in unison is stale and boring in comparison to a melody which is sung in harmony, even so, a complementarian vision of marriage far exceeds the egalitarian vision in its beauty, its glory, and its joy. So wives... Submission to your own husband is not a step away from self-fulfillment. It is the path of self-fulfillment. It is the path of greatest joy. God wired men and women differently. He wired men to crave and respond to respect. He wired women to crave and respond to love and affection. And when a wife shows her husband the respect that he so desperately craves, he cannot help but respond to her with the love and affection she so desperately needs. In other words, wives, willing, joyful, respectful submission to your husband is the means of receiving the love and the affection you crave. Test me in this. I plead with you. Try it out this week. Go out of your way to respect and show respect to your husband and see if the net effect is not greater happiness and greater joy for you. In the end, this is a matter of faith. In the end, the question is, do you believe God, because he's after your good and he is after your greater joy.